And as you take your seat, I'd encourage you to open your Bible, whether you're here in person this morning in this room or whether you're online, have your Bible open and follow along with the teaching of this morning. The Orange County Register is the largest and primary newspaper in that county just south of Los Angeles. And in 2014, in February of 2014, we were subscribing to that because we lived there, and I read a headline that captured my imagination. It read this, Fishing line could ease Sabbath restrictions in Irvine. Well, I went on to read the article and discovered that the University Park neighborhood in Irvine, just very close to John Wayne Airport, and about at that time, about 13 and a half miles from where Debbie and I lived, in Mission Viejo, had enclosed itself in a symbolic perimeter of fishing line. It's known as an air uve, and it consisted of literally fishing line. Now, Andrew, I don't know what filament it was, but some sort of fishing line was strung from telephone poles and other high places around this entire neighborhood. It allowed Orthodox Jews who lived in that neighborhood more freedom on the Sabbath. If you remember the fourth commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Every Saturday for the previous two years, the article went on to say, Linda Schwartz had stayed home while her husband, Ori, and their three daughters went to the synagogue. She was not allowed to carry their infant son, Yosef, out of the house. Driving was not allowed on the Sabbath, so families would walk to the synagogue. Small children couldn't be carried or pushed even in strollers, so parents stayed home or got a babysitter. Wheelchairs, crutches, canes, walkers, all of them had to stay at home, not allowed, outside the house on the Sabbath. You saw all of that in Exodus 20, right? You can't play catch in the park. You can't bring flowers to a neighbor. You can't... uh, There's a lot of things you just just can't do. In fact, you can't even carry keys in your pocket on the Sabbath, according to the rabbi. If you need reading glasses for the Sabbath service, then you had to drop them off at the synagogue the day before. And Eriuv supposedly solved this problem by encircling both public and private spaces, creating this one large domain. And as long as people stayed within the boundaries of the Eriuv, then they could carry items freely and go about their business. <laughs> it's, it sounds like something that would fit nicely in today, today's passage, right? You see, the scribes of Jesus' time, the scribes in the New Testament, viewed themselves as professional students and teachers of halakha, which was the clarification and practical application of God's law, which is what that article was all about. The Pharisees of Jesus' day were notorious for creating fences around God's law, allegedly to protect God's people from violating his law. It's called, actually, the Mishnah. The Mishnah was a codified scribal law. And the section on the Sabbath in the Mishnah, you can look this up for yourself, is no fewer than 24 chapters to describe how to negotiate, keep the Sabbath holy. It lists 39 different kinds of labor not allowed on the Sabbath. 
The Talmud, on the other hand, is an explanatory commentary on the Mishnah, and it routinely runs on for scores more pages. No wonder they are having such a hard time celebrating Sabbath. Well, this morning we continue our sermon series on the gospel according to Matthew, and I want to remind us of Matthew's purpose. Matthew is writing this gospel in order to present Jesus as king. Simply stated, that's what the purpose of this gospel according to Matthew. When you walked in this morning and walked through the foyer to come into the back door, you walked past a poster that looked just like that. Now, some of you might be scratching your head saying, I did? It's kind of like white noise. We walk by it so often we don't notice it's there anymore. But But it's a beautiful poster, and it says Kingdom Life. If you weren't with us last Sunday, either in person or online, I really urge you to go back and listen to Pastor Scott's message on the previous four verses, verses 17 through 20. It'll serve as a really great backdrop to what you're going to hear this morning. Jesus is is preaching. He's on the slope of a mountain, probably overlooking the city of Capernaum, uh, a port city on the Sea of Galilee. The last verse of chapter 4 of Matthew tells us that there were great crowds. In fact, they had come to hear him speak from all over the place, nearby, far away, even as far as Jerusalem, and the scripture says, and even beyond the Jordan River. Now, there were some in the crowd during Jesus' sermon on the mount who would have definitely felt at home in the city of Irvine, California, to be sure. Jesus is about to turn their perspectives, their expectations, even their interpretations of scripture upside down, or better yet, right side up. I began the scripture reading this morning with verse 20, even though Pastor Scott elaborated on that verse in great detail last week, but I did that because verse 20 is foundational to the rest of this chapter. From this point on till the end of of this chapter 5, all up to verse 48, Jesus is going to go on to illustrate the practical outworking of what he's already taught them in the Beatitudes. And he's going to illustrate in six different ways how kingdom living, what he has come to announce, goes far beyond the understanding of even the religious leaders of his day. In fact, I, I believe so much in this that I'm going to give you two big ideas. Just as an aside here, you know, we, we like to give a, a big idea or a key idea for a passage of scripture when we teach it. Now, if you look at Jesus' sermon, it's full of big ideas. There's <laughs> more than just one. In fact, I was chuckling about this earlier today because I'm not sure if Jesus were to preach this sermon, if he was to preach it in a homiletics class, a preaching class in a seminary, I'm not sure he would pass the class because it doesn't fit all of our structures and parameters for how to preach. Here's the first big idea, and it's really for the entire section from these, these verses all the way to the end of the chapter. Kingdom living is greater than the traditions of men, even those that are based on God's law. The specific key idea for the verses we're going to look at, 20 through 26, reads like this. Jesus invites people into kingdom living, where anger is not compatible with his rule. That's one of the key points we're going to see. But where God's people seek reconciliation. Now, in today's text, there's 
probably many more than this, but I'm going to highlight four things, four ways in which Jesus is inviting people into this life of kingdom living. And we're going to look at each of these in detail, but let me just give them to you very quickly. He's inviting people into a life of abundant goodness. He's inviting people into a life of greater responsibility. He's inviting people into a life of costly obedience. And he's inviting people into a life of proactive reconciliation. Now, I notice some of you are writing those down. That's, that's, that's wonderful. I'd love to see that. We'll, we'll look at each of these in detail. In fact, they'll be on the screen. But this invitation that is implicit within the Sermon on the Mount is actually a summons. Yes, it is an invitation, but it's also a summons that Jesus is, is making of his audience. And he's giving explicit warnings throughout this sermon about what will happen if they fail or if we fail to follow what he's talking about. So let's look at the first one in verse 20. Jesus invites us into a life of abundant goodness. Abundant goodness. Verse 20 reads, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. That verse is foundational to help us understand what's going to come. Today is the first of six ways that Jesus is going to apply his teaching. You're going to hear more from other, other people uh, preaching this in, in the ensuing weeks. Next week is about adultery. I'm going to be out of town. I'm really grateful for that. I don't have to, have to preach on that. I just get to preach on murder today, right? Awesome. This righteousness of which Jesus speaks here is defined by Matthew a little bit differently from how we define righteousness in other places of Scripture, namely in Paul's writings. In fact, last week, Pastor Scott used this definition. I've used it before, too, on the end of Matthew chapter 1. Let me read it again. Righteousness in Matthew is defined this way. It refers to whole person behavior, that which is in accordance with God's will, in accordance with His nature, and in accordance with his coming kingdom. That's the righteousness that Jesus is going to talk about here. J.B. Phillips wrote a paraphrase of the New Testament many years ago, and I appreciate the treatment that he gives for this verse because he takes the word righteousness and he paraphrases it with the term goodness. And I want to borrow that term this morning because Jesus is inviting us in or abundant goodness. It's goodness that exceeds, that far surpasses, that abounds, that overflows. Jesus is talking on a totally different, higher plane. Now, we know he's doing that literally because he's on a mountain. But in terms of what he's saying, he's he's speaking far above a much higher plane than what the religious leaders of his time would be speaking. The, The goodness of which he speaks is way more demanding than the so-called righteousness of the religious leaders. Because it's not merely about the outward observance of a man-made code of conduct. It's more about inner attitudes, motives. It's about character being more than mere conduct. In other words, it's a heart issue. And Jesus is going to get to the heart of the matter here in these verses. It's not an issue of performance. 
It's an issue of the heart. Now, the Pharisees, and I might add some of us as well, they love to posture themselves as the ultimate law keepers. But Jesus is about to demonstrate otherwise. In fact, by the time he finishes this sermon at the end of chapter 7, it will be clear that they actually failed to take God's laws seriously enough because of the depth that he's going to take them, that Jesus will take them. And this idea that they will never enter the kingdom of heaven, to enter the kingdom of heaven here, as Jesus is presenting us, that does not mean going to a place called heaven. So take that right out of your thinking right now. It means, rather, to come under God's rule and to recognize his kingship, to live by his standards, to truly be God's people. So in verse 20, Jesus invites us into a life of abundant goodness. In verses 21 and 22, Jesus goes on to give us a second invitation. And that is, he invites us into a life of greater responsibility. Jesus invites into a life of greater responsibility. Verses 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, uh, to the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of their day. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Well, this begins a series of repeated contrasting claims. And we'll see this over and over again. You have heard, but I say. Jesus' teaching is qualitatively different, superior, than the teaching of the religious leaders of his day. And this is why, frankly, that, that at the end of the sermon, you know, the sermon goes for three chapters. The Sermon on the Mount isn't just the Beatitudes and what we're talking about today. It goes all the way through chapter 7. At the end of chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, it reads that the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Verse 29 states that he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Now, Jesus is not criticizing the Old Testament law, but he's he's criticizing the understanding and the interpretation of that law that many, if not most, of his hearers on that mountain had adopted. (laughs) His teaching is unlike any other rabbi of his day. Do you remember the classic musical Fiddler on the Roof? I want to see a show of hands. How many have not seen? How many have not seen Fiddler on the Roof? Okay. I'm just going to encourage you as one of the pastors here before your head hits a pillow tonight, watch Fiddler on the Roof, okay? The rest of you who didn't put your hands up, you would agree, right? I mean, it's wonderful. In fact, even as I mentioned Fiddler on the Roof, automatically you're thinking of something. It's a musical. So there's a song ringing through your head, right? I told Deb that I might, and she said, don't do it. And I said, okay, I won't. Uh, but you know, I want to. But I, but I, but I, I, and I didn't first service either. But I, but I want to, right? It's, it's, just, it's a wonderful musical. Please watch it. Fiddler on the Roof. And it has so many applications here, and I'm going to make one of them right now. The main character, this Russian Jew, Tevya, 
he illustrates how different Jesus' teaching is because what he does is he illustrates the traditional teaching of the rabbis. He frequently will have these conversations in between music, musical uh, uh, songs. He'll, he'll have a conversation with himself or with God or with creation, and, and he'll, he'll frequently go, well, on the one hand, and he'll give this discourse, and then he'll come over here and he'll say, but on the other hand. It's exactly what the rabbis did. They would walk into a synagogue on the Sabbath, they would open the scroll, they would read it, and then they would say, let me tell you about what so-and-so rabbi said two centuries ago. But that's counteracted by what this guy said over here. And then they would close up the scroll and walk away. That's why when Jesus went into his hometown in Nazareth and opened up the scroll to Isaiah 61 and read it, and then he said, this is fulfilled in your hearing today? It was so radical. It was so amazing. Because Jesus is speaking at, at such a different level. Now, today's passage specifically refers to the sixth commandment. And if you go back and look at Exodus 20, 13, it's a very short verse. It's one of the shortest verses in the Bible. It says, you shall not murder. Notice, though, in the text here uh, this morning that he goes on to say, you shall, you've heard, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Well, that, that second piece comes from somewhere else. It comes from their traditional understanding. And then they go on to describe what that looks like. The, the scribes and the Pharisees do. This term liable literally means to be held or bound under obligation to the point that you can't escape, to be subject to something, to be guilty. And that's the point of the scribes and Pharisees. You'll be guilty and you'll be held liable for murder. But Jesus uses that same phrase three times more and he says, guess what, folks? You're going to be held liable for something that goes far beyond that. And then he names anger, which I'm going to talk about in just a second. He talks about insults, which he uses a term there that when I grew up using the King James Version, the actual Aramaic word is in the King James, and it's the word racha. You have to cough when you say it, racha. And I used to get hung up on that. It's like, oh my gosh, if I ever say racha, then I'm in trouble, right? That's not the point. Raha was, was this kind of a quasi-swear word in Aramaic that literally translated meant empty-headed. But what Jesus is saying here is if you go around telling people, namely your brother, you're empty-headed, right? And you do it in a contemptuous manner with that attitude of the heart. He said, guess what? You're subject. You're liable. You're responsible for judgment, even to the point of the Supreme Court judgment, the rule of the, of the Sanhedrin. And then for the Greeks in his audience there on the side of the mountain, he uses a Greek term for fool. It's the same word from which we get the English word moron. I like the way J.B. Phillips paraphrases this. It, it means to look on your brother as a lost soul. Jesus says, you do that, you have that attitude in your heart, you look on your brother as a fool, as a lost soul, as a moron, then you'll be liable not just to judgment to the Sanhedrin, but you'll be liable to the the hell of fire. Let's back up to anger, because this is the, the first point that he makes as he contrasts murder with anger. He actually connects them. Anger is that destructive force, right? It's often expressed in the kind of relationship-destroying language that he gives examples of here. 
And then, and then it will culminate eventually in life-destroying murder. This is an echo of something we've already seen in Scripture. Go back to the account of creation. Go back to Genesis chapter 4. You remember the story? Adam and Eve, they've already been thrown out of the garden. They have two children, two sons, Cain and Abel. They bring offerings to the Lord. God accepts the offering of Abel and does not regard the offering of Cain. Something was awry. What is Cain's response? you remember? The scripture says, so Cain was very angry. You see where it starts? You know where it's going to end. In fact, listen to this dialogue between God and Cain. This is God Almighty, the creator, speaking directly to Cain. Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you right the ship, if you repent of your attitude and actions here, everything can be okay, basically is what God is saying. And if you do not do well, then sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. Well, Cain didn't listen to the direct word from the Lord. Instead, the last verse, verse 8 tells us, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and murdered him. Jesus is making the connection. He's connecting the dots between anger and murder, something the religious leaders had missed. This is not a new concept, and we'll see examples of this as we move through the passage. Jesus is claiming that life in his kingdom has a deeper liability. There's more responsibility than even the meticulous lifestyle of the most devout religious leaders of his day. And I want you just to stop for a second. Just, just, just stop and let that sink in. I've had to stop for several days and let that sink in as I've been preparing this. It's not been pleasant at all times. The scribes and the Pharisees were essentially guilty of this. They were guilty of what I'll call partial interpretation of God's standards. The rest of the Old Testament is actually full of references to this deeper liability, this greater responsibility. But somehow they had missed it. Let me give you a couple examples. God told Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7, that he sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then David, in his wonderful psalm of repentance, Psalm 51, verse 6, he makes it clear Behold, you, God, delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. See, what Jesus is preaching here on the mount is not new, but they'd missed it. So Jesus is setting the record straight. He's letting the crowd know what God really means by his commands. Stop and think about that. What better preacher of God's truth than the second person of the Trinity? The word of God, making the word of God plain and clear to the audience. And then this this jarring, unexpected uh, conclusion at the end of verse 22. In hellfire, you know, this comes as a shocking jolt to anyone in the crowd who's not listening. It's kind of like, and some of you jumped because you were dozing. Or maybe those that were too complacent. Or proudly smug in their own self-righteousness. 
This is scary stuff. Verse 22 takes the truth of what God really means by his command, do not murder, takes it to a wholly different level. And in doing so, Jesus invites us into a life of greater responsibility. Well, the third thing he invites us to is found in verses 23 and 24. Jesus invites us into a life of costly obedience. And this is kind of really where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. Verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Now, I want to make this quick little observation. It's interesting to note that Jesus changes from talking in the second person plural to the corporate audience. He changes his terminology to the first person, excuse me, second person, singular. He he begins going from talking to the crowd as a whole to talking to individuals. It's as if he's looking at some of these, these early followers of his, maybe Peter, maybe James, maybe John, who were probably in the front row. Or maybe he's looking on the outskirts at some of these scribes and Pharisees, and he's beginning to, to look at them, look them in the eye, and to give them very specific, concrete uh, illustrations. It's as if he's individualizing his, his teaching now to them. And I, I can't help but think, if I'm, if I'm Peter, uh, or if I'm John, you know, one of the sons of thunder, I'm, I'm kind of looking at, we're looking at each other. Because we were just fishing a couple nights ago, right? And the net broke and we lost a bunch of profit. And you moron. I, you know, and I said something crazy like that. You empty-headed fool. Something crazy like that. And so this is beginning to kind of get un- under their skin. I can imagine this rippling throughout the crowd. If Jesus were here preaching that same sermon, <laughs> he would be way more adept than I am at getting to the root of the matter here. And then notice the progression of, of these action words. I love this. It's, Leave and go, reconciled, and then come and offer. The obedience implicit in these action words is going to prove costly in many ways. Let me give you a couple of examples. This gift that's being referred to here in verse 23 is most likely, it's not a a sacrificial gift that's made for sin or atonement. It's not one of those high feast day gifts. This is a voluntary offering. This is a, an offering of praise and thanksgiving to God, showing that you, you desire to be in God's presence. You want to draw near to him. It probably involved a sacrificial animal as well. But it's something that's done to- totally voluntary. And the only logical place for this offering would have been at the temple in Jerusalem. Where's Jesus? He's on a mountain overlooking Capernaum. That's 80 miles away. So there's a distance here. So when Jesus is telling you to leave it there, leave the sacrifice at the altar, leave it in the custody of the, of the priest who's about to offer the sacrifice, leave it there and go take care of this thing. He's telling them to go on a journey of a week or more to go back to, back to Galilee and then to come back to Jerusalem. Will the sacrifice still be there? Or will that priest maybe use it for somebody else? You don't know that. Obedience is costly. How many wages are you going to lose because of the extra time in travel? 
Or, or how about just even the, the cost of, of relationship building? Am I going to be made out to be kind of, a, kind of a fool by the person that I'm going to seek to be reconciled with? By the person that I, that I believe I have offended? Are they going to even want to listen to me? If I send them a text, are they going to respond? Will they have a conversation with me? Jesus says, go and do it anyways. And the term reconciled here, it's an interesting word in that it's only used this one time, right here. Now, you you might say, wait a minute. Reconciliation is used throughout the the New Testament, especially in Paul's writings. Well, Well, it is in other forms. But in this form, this is the only time this word appears. And it... It literally means to thoroughly change or transform the mind of the other person. Your actions will change the mind of the other person, enabling you to reconcile and to renew that friendship. 1 Samuel 15.22 says, uh, and again, this time it's Samuel who's speaking directly to King Saul, and he says, look, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Here's the good news of the kingdom. God's grace is working out His his rule, His reign in our lives. And when God is ruling our lives, He is changing us into the people He's created us to be and whom He's redeemed us to be. The point that's being made here is the importance of right relationships as it relates to worship, which in turn demands decisive action. Interpersonal reconciliation is intricately uh, connected, and it's and it's even it's super, it supersedes the proper ritual of worship. In other words, you can't worship effectively without also being reconciled before that. Does that make sense? That's, that's the, again, Jesus is connecting dots in a way that these folks had never heard before. Now, mind you, th- I'm not saying this is easy. This is not always easy. Confession is good for the soul. Late last night, again, early this morning, because I didn't respond right away, I had a clear sense that Tim, don't even think about going into the pulpit until you've reached out to someone and you know who I'm talking about. Wow. Oh, okay. Yes, yes, Lord. Okay. If I'm going to talk about this, i got to practice this. That's not easy, right? Now, I didn't even have to travel 160 miles, but I've, but I've started that ball rolling by reaching out to a person that I've been estranged from for over two years. Do you have someone in your, in your mind as well? Do you, do you see a face of someone that maybe God is asking you to respond to? I only share that with you because if I'm going to practice what I preach, th- then, then that's what i got to do. I gotta respond. And it's not always easy. But it is convicting. When we talk about repentance, that, that uh, term that means a, a turning, a changing of the mind, and it also has in, in view the changing of behavior... We're talking about not only turning away from something, namely sin, but we're also talking about turning towards something. And in this case, it's kingdom living. And even more importantly, it's Jesus himself. Jesus invites us into a life 
of costly obedience. The fourth and and last point that I want to make out of this passage is that Jesus invites us into a life of proactive reconciliation, verses 25 and 26. And it's a natural outgrowth of the two previous verses. Verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you'll never get out of until you have paid the last penny. This idea of come to terms, it's actually just one, one word in Matthew's gospel in the Greek. Here's what it means. If you were to literally unpack the word, kind of expand it a little bit, this is what this word that we translate, come to terms, this is what it means. To give yourself wholly to continually thinking well of your adversary. Whoa. This isn't just a one-time, one-off thing here. No, Jesus, again, is calling his audience to a much deeper understanding of what, of what God requires in this life of righteousness or goodness. Furthermore, in the previous two verses, he was talking about reconciling with a brother, maybe somebody within, the, within your family or maybe somebody within the body of Christ. Here, he's talking about your accuser, literally your opponent in a lawsuit, your adversary, your enemy. And there's urgency involved here. He says, do it quickly. Urgency is necessary. Get, take, get, get a, an out-of-court settlement here, lest sudden judgment fall upon you. Now, in the first 9 o'clock worship gathering, there was a, a lawyer sitting here, right about where you're sitting, Andrew. And uh, he came to me afterwards, and he goes, you're taking away my clients. You're taking away my business here, encouraging people to get out-of-court settlements. But, but the point that Jesus is making, he said that jokingly, but the point that Jesus is making here is, is there should be urgency here. Take care of business right away. Otherwise, you don't know how quickly judgment may come on you. And in fact, he illustrates that by saying, you're going to be thrown in, in, in prison, and they're going to keep you there until you've paid the last penny. The King James renders that as farthing, which is an English uh, equivalent. It's actually the, the, the Roman term quadrons, which, which was a fourth part, just one-fourth of a penny. It was the second smallest coin in the Roman Empire. It represented one-sixty-fourth of a day's wage. The point here he's making is that you won't get out of prison until you've been squeezed of all your resources. There's terrible responsibility, terrible liability, terrible judgment here if we don't respond. So Jesus invites us into a life of proactive reconciliation. But this reconciliation piece, these two examples here that we've just looked at, it's kind of an odd placement. It's like, why is Jesus putting this here in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount before he turns his attention to other examples I believe it's because kingdom living, again, is not only salvation from something, but it's salvation to something or for something. Kingdom living is not just about avoiding anger or abusive speech or murder, of course, but it's also about living a proactive, obedient lifestyle. In this case, walking in righteousness is living a reconciled life. And this idea of entering the kingdom of heaven, this kind of lifestyle here, this is not a description, um, like, like it's, it's not a transaction. It's not something that we, 
we attain when we pray some sort of formula prayer or when we walk an aisle or we raise a hand or we check a box. Although I was raised in a church where that's how it was treated and that's what we did. No, it's, it speaks of an ongoing daily walking with Jesus in a lifestyle where he is king. Jesus invites us to a life lived full of abundant goodness, but greater responsibility and costly obedience and proactive reconciliation. And when I say that in my mind, that begs some questions. One of them is, have we misunderstood? Have we misunderstood Jesus' invitation to kingdom living? When we walk past that poster, kingdom life, do we really understand what that's about? It's possible to agree with everything Jesus teaches in this sermon, yet to fail to live it accordingly. In fact, the very best efforts of our human piety are inadequate for salvation. So where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us with our focus directly on Jesus. In a few chapters, in chapter 11, Jesus is going to make it very clear. He's going to say, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, to borrow the phrase from that title of the book we're encouraging you to read. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden, unlike the scribes and the Pharisees, my burden is light. All the righteousness, all the goodness that would be required of men and women and young people and boys and girls before the high court of God, all of that has been performed by Jesus. <laughs> Hallelujah for that. Jesus has taken that on himself. That's why he's able to say in verse 17, look, I, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. Jesus has fulfilled all those requirements. But nothing short of a radical transformation in our lives, what some other gospel writers, namely John, calls new birth, can enable one to live as a disciple of Jesus. But you know what? This is not a new thought. This is not a new concept. This has been taught before in the scriptures. Last week, Pastor Scott referenced Jeremiah 31, uh, 33. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Let me add to that today, Ezekiel 36, 27. Let me actually back up to verse 26 and then 27 will be on the screen. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Folks, brothers, sisters, strangers, when we profess faith in and allegiance to King Jesus, we're given his righteousness, his goodness. Amen? But then Jesus expects us to live in accordance with that. And that's the point that he's making here. How might a kingdom living perspective change your current life? I've had to ask that question in the first person all week. Have you turned from living your life according to your desires and your plans and your hopes for the future, even your personal interpretations of Scripture? Or have you reoriented your thinking 
based on his kingdom agenda. Do you know the power of this good news of Jesus' kingdom in your life? If you walked in here today, and I don't, I don't think I see anybody that I don't recognize, but if you had walked in here today without ever hearing this before, um, th- this is what Jesus is inviting us into here. Are we, are we continually dependent upon his grace and his power to live this life that he's set out in front of us? Just as he did on the slope of that mountain, Jesus invites today, he invites us to join his kingdom, to live life with him as our king. In the summer of 1973, my sister-in-law sang the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi at our wedding. Now, it's debatable whether or not the 13th century founder of the Franciscan order actually penned this prayer, but the song is beautiful. It was first published in 1912, and it speaks eloquently to today's message. Here's the first half of the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace, Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is error, truth. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. The the really good news about Jesus' invitation here is that, it? yes, it involves a change of thinking, but that change of thinking then results in a whole new way of living under his control. Jesus is still inviting people into his kingdom. I invite you to submit to King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we, as we hear the, the truth of the Sermon on the Mount from your lips, Jesus, we're stunned frankly, into silence before you. Yet we're so grateful that the truth of the Sermon on the Mount still rings loudly and clearly today at the beginning of the 21st century. We're grateful. We're grateful for your word. Lord, now take your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit, please drive it deep within our hearts so that it would take root and then bear fruit to your glory to the glory of your kingdom. We pray this in the precious name of our King, King Jesus. Amen.